The sound of nature can be so peaceful, don't you think? What you just heard were the sound of leaves rustling, the calls of different birds, and the river. This is the third audio clip that was recorded by Mary Harner. She was on the bank of the Rio Grande for this one. Hello, my name is Renee Simonson and welcome to my podcast, episode 3 of 3, the last of this series. This was recorded in the spring of 2022. The focus of this episode will be on solutions and hope relating to water sustainability. Before I begin, I just want to say that sometimes I ask everyone a question and the answers I receive are similar, so I won't include all of them. Okay, let me start where I left off from the previous episode. People who are working hard to sustain water are faced with many challenges such as climate change, dwindling water supplies, and laws related to the allocation and management of water. Well, it sounds bad. But is that it? No, it can't be. What is being done to try and help maintain the water that we have? I first asked everyone what they were doing to find solutions to the water crisis. The first two people to answer this question are Becky and Mary. Let's learn what they're up to. In our lab, we have a number of projects that look at how uh, river restoration, so the building of side channels, the creating a stream channel that's less like a pipe and has more complexity and more heterogeneity. If we restore the stream to look like that um, in areas, particularly through Albuquerque and Los Lunas, um, yeah. if we make those restoration areas, how, how do we monitor them to make sure that they're filling the function that we hope they are? Um, so those, a lot of those restoration sites are for the federally listed Rio Grande Silver Minnow, and we're really interested in how those restoration sites uh, perform in terms of their food resources. So I work on invertebrates and I work on algae. How do those restored sites do in terms of the quantity and quality of food resources that fish like the silvery minnow need to eat? So Becky spoke about in-stream restoration uh, here on the Platte River. Some of the restoration or a lot of the restoration work focuses on the land in and around the river channel. So in this part of the country, a lot of the natural disturbances would have been from floods and also wildfires and grazing by um, historically bison and human activities have diminished the river flows. There are no longer native bison herds uh, as there, there once were, and then most wildfire has been suppressed. And so some of the active um, work that happens for conservation here is trying to bring back some of those disturbances at a smaller scale. And so haying meadows or uh, conducting pre prescribed burns or reintroducing um, bison to some areas or trying to graze cattle in a way that more mimics what how bison might have grazed on the landscape and, and an interaction of all of those things. And so some of our student projects uh, work with conservation partners in the area to look at the response of different parts of the system. So for example, a current graduate student Bethany Ostrom is studying bird communities along the Central Platte River in areas that are under different management regimes. And she's using 
acoustics or how the system sounds um, in doing surveys in person and what are called point count surveys to identify birds with her, her eyesight and ear, but also using automated recorders that can be left in the field to determine whether automated rep recorders can um, be used in addition to human observers to kind of increase the amount of area that can be covered or the frequency that surveys can be done. And ultimately her work is helping inform a local conservation organization, the Crane Trust, about whether their different management activities are having the intended outcomes for migratory birds and uh, nesting birds that use these river habitats and the areas around the river um, throughout the year, but especially in the breeding season and summer. Isn't that interesting? Ecologists are changing water channels and flow, prescribing burns, introducing organisms, and monitoring these changes in order to keep the ecosystem as natural as possible. Now let's hear what John has to say. So a couple of things that are really important that are going on. One, you are seeing very aggressive um, and continued water conservation efforts led by the municipal water, the city water agencies. Mm -hmm. So, and my favorite example, this is um, uh, a struggle underway in Las Vegas led by the, the big water agency that serves Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah. They, they got state legislation passed to ban what they call ornamental turf, lawns that, that are just decorative. And here's how they define it. A lawn that the only people who ever walk on it are the people who mow it, <laughs> you can't have that lawn. Right, right. So that's, yeah. you know, that's an aggressive legal mechanism. And they've yeah. already banned no, new houses in Las Vegas, and this has been the case for a while, can't have any lawn in their front yard, period. You can have a little patch of lawn in your backyard, you know, a small one for the kids to play on, the dogs to play on. So it's not like zero lawn, but a lot less lawn. So things like that, you have programs that are paying homeowners to, um, uh, to put low flow toilets in, things like that. Mm -hmm. Those kind of programs are really successful in growing across the Western United States. Um, there is a lot of work being done to do, to do a better job of reusing wastewater. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of places, like we're inland, like Albuquerque, we already put all our wastewater back in the river. So our oper it, and so it's available for the downstream ecosystem, basically. So our water reuse opportunities are limited because that water's already going somewhere and doing something useful. But if you're out on the coast in, in LA, they just put the wastewater in the ocean they can recycle that. And there's a big project in LA underway right now to build a giant wastewater recycling plant to make to clean up the wastewater so it's usable. Yeah. Um, and to the whole notion of cooperation and collaboration, LA, LA County and the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California started the project, building the project, big expensive project, a lot of water involved. Las Vegas, Nevada and the greater Phoenix area, their biggest water agency, are now financially contributing to help that. Oh, and they won't like pipe the water to Phoenix or pipe the water up to Las Vegas. Um, you'll just do accounting swaps, so water that would have gone um, uh, to LA, they'll use the recycled water and then Arizona and, and Las Vegas can take the water out of the river upstream. They can do these complicated accounting swaps. So, so, and that's a great example of collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that's happening is increasingly sophisticated cooperative 
agreements between the big farm districts, which use a lot of water, and the cities. So, so you go to a farm district and say, we'll pay you to use a little bit less water. And you can switch to much more efficient irrigation systems, or you can just fallow periodically bits of land around, you know, not, not plant them this year, not irrigate them this year. And that conserved water is available for the system for other users. And there's increasingly sophisticated work going on in that. So that's where the solution space lies is conservation, reuse, and these complicated collaborative arrangements. You know, and the cities are rich. The cities can afford to compensate the farmers. Of course, yeah. We're rich. We can afford to do that. It's just a question of how do you structure the agreements in a way that preserves the cultural integrity of the community so it's still doing farming, so that there's still farming going on. And this really good friend, a guy named Bart Fisher, who's a farmer down on the lower Colorado River um, in a place called Blythe, just in the desert, a very hot place. I visited him a couple of years ago in the summer. Like, John, why did you go there in the summer? Well, it's <laughs> Bart lives there and he's farming melons in the summer. Oh, no, you know. Um, and, and BART is being paid right now to, to not farm, to fallow a bunch of his land. He's got wow. like a huge farm, 10,000 acres. He's being paid to fallow thousand, you know, a couple of thousand of his acres. And that water, so that water, we save that water, it's available. You know, we can leave it in the reservoir, we can send it to the cities. And those kind, and he's, he's getting paid a lot, but he's making, he's getting paid less than the money he would make if he continued to farm that land. But Bart is a citizen of this larger community, recognizes the scale of the challenge and the importance to contribute. So he's willing to lose a little bit of money um, in order to help uh, solve the problem. I had never heard of paying farmers not to farm in order to save water. I think that's very creative and fair. I also noticed he said there were mandates to ban ornamental turf. This surprised me. I would think Americans might have some issue with being told what to do with their land, so I decided to ask him about it. Here is his response. Yeah, yeah, and that's the argument, and there's, they, they get pushback on that. They, they definitely get pushback. Las Vegas gets pushback on that, but, but you know, Las Vegas is saying, we just don't have the water. <laughs> if we want to continue to exist as a city, we have to figure out how to use less water. Yeah. You can't have that water. It's not your water. Maybe it's your land, but it's not your water. It's the community's water. It's the basin's water. The water is a public trust, a public good that belongs to everyone. And we can't just have you wasting it on, on non-functional turf. Wow. I, that, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 yeah, but it's really gutsy. You know, I was talking to, the, to my friends who are in the leadership of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which is the agency doing this. They're getting beat up by the business community who wants their ornamental grass because it makes their commercial properties look prettier. Okay, what do the graduate students who are currently working on their own research projects think? Brennan is first, then Molly and Wes. I think what my project is hoping to add um, is a greater understanding of, of where our water is going and what the water is providing. Um, and being willing to challenge the status quo um, in the form of like current rules and regulations, current laws, but also um, just people's, you know, trains of thought. Um, and I don't know. I, w I would like to, to prove that our water is 
valuable for more than just uh, municipal use, more than just irrigation, um, for more than just like one thing or another thing or another thing. I would like to prove that our water is valuable because it is water, because it is there, because we interact with it. It's a part of a lot of people in the city's daily lives. Yeah. I mean, pretty much everybody, because we turn a tap on. Sure. Um, and, and, so, and so those are the things that I want to know, like, because, you know, you can put a price tag on how much you're earning off of agriculture. You can put a price tag on how much uh, your water bill is, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And like, those are important. Those are good things to know, but I want to know, um, the other ways that water is like adding value to people's lives so that we can take that um, to the powers that be and hopefully use that as impetus to maybe change the status quo a little bit. Um, so unfortunately right now um, there is no straightforward uh, solution for yeah. um, climate change and um, I mean, just the, the big aspect of, of water quality and, you know, um, monitoring. But the, we're doing the best by continuously studying and oh, okay. having this long-term data or even short-term data that gives us a snapshot or an idea of what's going on. Yeah. And by having people in the, the water sciences and water resources to be able to monitor that both on a policy side and mm -hmm. a hydroscience side oh, yeah. is... It's incredible. Well, in the middle of Rio Grande, there's definitely a lot of players. Um, players at the table. Mm -hmm. There's Army Corps of Engineers. There's Bureau of Rec, Middle Rio Grande, uh, Fish and Wildlife, and then of course Open Space. And Open Space is um, kind of tracked with. Um, managing the Bosque here in the Albuquerque area. But a lot of these agencies kind of lack uh, community input. Mm. And there's so many community members that want to go out and help manage these lands. It's just that either people haven't thought about that or they don't really want to put the effort into trying to you know, have these bosky planting days that might require 50, 75, 100 volunteers. Um, so I think that's one of the big conservation strategies that these agencies can use in the, in the um, middle Rio Grande is mm -hmm. actually utilizing the community and bringing them out and kind of uh, building that sense of community by utilizing them. Recording data, making recommendations based on the data they collected, and working with the public all seem to be great ways to go about helping with water sustainability. I like it. My second question was, what direction would they like for research to go towards, or what would they like to see more of in the future? We'll find out what Mary thinks, then Brennan and Molly. Becky and I and other colleagues have been working on summarizing history of research on the Middle Rio Grande, kind of going back, kind of starting in the, the late 1980s to present. And we've been talking about kind of what's defined recent research and maybe kind of to your question, like where should it go? And I think one of the directions is to continue to think beyond the 
the river channel and its immediate boundaries. And so the river is part of a larger watershed and the ecosystems and the people that are part of that system. And so some of Becky and her colleagues work with fires in the headwaters and the effects that that has downstream and our our land use decisions that are happening in forested areas of the headwaters affect what happens around Albuquerque. And so I think an emerging direction and a direction that needs to continue to be a focus is sort of this larger view of a watershed and what's happening at these bigger spatial scales or over larger areas. And that kind of work, like what we've been talking about, uh, even at the smaller scales, requires partnerships. You're covering a lot of ground, a lot of different kinds of land ownership and management, and that work requires working in teams um, within universities and, importantly, with a lot of different stakeholders outside of the universities. I would love to see more research focused on the human impacts um, of the decisions that we have made and are making. Uh, you know, I grew up thinking about humans and nature as being like the separate, like two personalities or whatever. And, you know, I got my degree in biology and a lot of that research is like very focused on specific processes in an ecosystem or specific processes in a cell, like, yeah. and oh, yeah. microbio isn't my thing, but, um, the more I've like dug into research and, and the research that really compels me and calls to me is the research that uh, takes into account the, the human side of things. Um, it, it takes into account the fact that we are nature and we exist within and... Yeah. and We're not really animals. Right, not yeah. at all. We yeah. are animals, yeah. Um, and so I like to, to see that train of thought come more into like the, the hard science fields like biology and stuff, yeah. I would love to see um, more of an accepted focus towards climate change and the dynamics and how it how it could continuously affect society, especially here in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I would love to see more funding, but everyone would, and I think that's a little bit of a pipe dream. <laughs> Thinking big picture, working with others, focusing more on human impacts, and addressing the climate change issue are some great paths to head toward. I also like the more money thing too. I can relate. For my next question, I wanted to know if somebody saw success in making positive changes in their field. Did a management plan really work out in helping an ecosystem community? John Fleck answers this question. So, so the most interesting and important one that I've written about a lot, and in fact, I spent a bunch of time with these the people who work on this when I was in Salt Lake City last week, is in the Colorado River Delta. So the, the Colorado River um, drains seven U.S. states and two Mexican states. It you know, starts up in Wyoming and Utah and Colorado and flows you know, Mexico and flows down through Arizona and Nevada and California and out into the Gulf of California. Um, on the, it makes up the border between Baja and Sonora in California. Yeah. And well, it used to flow out there. We use all the water, and, and, and by the time it gets to the U.S.-Mexico border, the river's all used up. There's no water, and so you have, it's just dry. So you have this delta, this what used to be a river delta, you know, a couple of million acres of 
beautiful wetlands, magnificent wetlands, completely dried up. Part of it has been turned into farmland, and, and the Mexican, Mexico has a share of the water that it can use, and it diverts it and farms part of this, but you just have this river channel that's completely dry. So uh, eight years ago now, geez, eight years ago today, eight years ago today, wow. Um, this was a really emotional experience for me personally. So oh. eight years ago today, there's, there's this dam on the um, U.S.-Mexico border, a dam called Morales Dam, mm -hmm. and it's the last dam on the Colorado River. And it's where Mexico diverts its water to the farms and the cities of the Mexicali Valley, Mexicali Valley. Um, and the first time I went down there in 2010, I've been working on Colorado River issues for a long time, but I'd never really been down to the bottom of the system. And a friend said, you should pay attention to the Delta, John. That's really interesting. The not Delta, right? Yeah. And so, the, and so I, the first time I was there, I went, went out to see Morales Dam. I was driving down. There's a levee road along the edge. It's like the U.S.-Mexico border, so there's like border patrol and walls and fences. It's a crazy place. Driving down the levee road on the U.S. side of the border and drove past Morales Dam, and the Colorado River just stops. There's a little kind of stagnant pool at the bottom side of the dam and a little channel that's, you know, for me halfway to that wall, a little narrow channel. The entire Colorado River reduced, to like, like at one at one point I saw a guy from the neighborhood and his dog was running back and forth across the river. It's just there's no river left, and that to me, you know, we're 100 miles from the ocean at this point. It's just dry. So, in 2014, as a result of a complicated collaborative agreement between the United States and Mexico and the water users on both sides of the border, in the midst of kind of bad drought conditions, spring of 2014, they. Um, set aside some water. They did water conservation efforts in both in the U.S. and Mexico to set aside some water. And they opened the gates of Morales Dam and they started letting water down this dry river channel. I was there the day that, that they did it because I was working on a book. Um, and um, it was a life-changing experience for me to see that people could come together collaboratively and provide water for the ecosystem and they, it's, they called it a pulse flow. And um, the, the water started, and it went slow, it wasn't a big wall of water, they gradually increased the flow, and it's sort of flowing down the stretch. And the, the day they released the water, um, you know, it's sort of moving slowly down the channel, and I went for a, a drive on the Mexican side, down the, down the um, uh, Mexican side of the river to a town called San Luis, which is 20 miles to the south, and there's a bridge across the river. And it's kind of a famous landmark because you have this big b bridge across the Colorado River, which is a bridge across a sand bed. There is no water in this river. Oh, and so, but, and so, I'm, so I'm driving down the highway, and, and I see underneath the bridge, there's a whole bunch of people under the bridge. It's like, what's that? So I got off the highway and down through these neighborhoods, dirt roads to get to the underneath the bridge yeah. and I don't speak Spanish and I wasn't prepared for this kind of, you know, I didn't bring a translator and I wasn't prepared for this kind of work at all. And so I started <laughs> going up, it was like, what are you doing here? But like, I, it took me a while to find someone who spoke English <laughs> to explain yeah. what they were doing. Like, and I felt like such a stupid gringo. Um, and, and I found a guy who explained that the people of the, of the community were coming out 
to clean up the riverbed to prepare for the arrival of the river. Oh, they the, heard about it. They knew it was coming. They, had, they knew it was coming, and they heard about it, and they did a big community cleanup project. Um, and I had gone there expecting sort of the environmental science components, and I had arranged tours and e interviews and meetings with scientists about the environmental benefits of this flow. And I realized that I had missed the story that this was a community thing. And the guy, so that there's a little town um, on the U.S. It's it's a, a town that spans the U.S. and the Mexican side of the border. It's called San Luis. Um, San Luis on the Arizona side, and then on the um, um, Mexican side, it's called San Luis Rio, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And the guy who then was a super nice guy who became my translator and helped me for a couple of hours talking to all the people, he said, you have to understand, John, that the name of our town isn't just San Luis, it's San Luis Rio, Colorado. We are a town that, they're the only town on the Colorado River that has Rio, Colorado, Colorado River in its name. Mm -hmm. And they had been without a river for decades because the river was dried up. And the community was so excited about the return of their river. And so I realized I had to throw out my plans about environmental science. I realized this is something different. And I need to be there when the water gets to San Luis. And it was a couple of days travel time. So I you know, spent time with all the sciencey people understanding how the water was making its way down this 20 miles of dry riverbed to get there really gradually. Um, and so two days later, the day that the water arrived at San Luis, um, I just, I didn't know when it was coming. Again, I don't speak Spanish. I just drove and parked under the bridge. Yeah. It was empty. There was a guy sleeping with a bedroll waiting to sneak across the border at night. It was pretty empty. There were these, um, there were these um, two guys from Canagua, which is the water agency in Mexico, and a big Canagua pickup truck, and they drove up. So I went over and talked to them, and like, we didn't have a common language, but waving our arms, we both knew the word agua, and we pointed at watches, and they told me, I think it's about two hours away. Um, and so I was just sitting there in the, shade of the, um, in the shade of the bridge, eating my sandwiches and waiting, and there was this young guy in a little four-wheel ATV thing, and I saw him go up the river channel and then come back down and go up the river channel. So I waved him down, and he spoke English. Um, and I said, um, to the water? Are you going up to see the water? He said, yeah, you want to come? And I'm like, I'm not a very adventurous guy. <laughs> and the notion of getting on, the, getting on some, the some strange guy's ATV and zooming around the deserts of Mexico is like, but I'm like, yeah, I guess I need to do this. So you know, <laughs> grabbed my camera and tucked a notebook in my pocket and, and got. On. It didn't even have a back seat. I just kind of sat on behind him and held on. And he drove me up, and you know, went maybe a mile up the riverbed to a place where the water was just starting to filter down. And it's just creeping down through the sand, and it was quiet, and the water was there, and it was just such a moving experience. So we went back down and waited at the bridge, and by the time the water got there, two hours later. There were, there must have been a thousand people. Everybody came out. Everybody from the community came out. Wow. There were people drinking beer and playing with soccer balls and kids playing in the water. And it was just this um, happy explosion. A celebration. It was a celebration. Yeah. Thanks for the word. It was a celebration. And then, the, and the water kept flowing there for six weeks, eight weeks. It's not like this was a permanent solution. Of course. Um, but that community got their river back, 
and the water made it to the environmental restoration sites where the cottonwoods are growing and the cottonwoods of you know and and they kept putting additional amounts of water on these environmental restoration and habitat sites mm -hmm. um, it's not a lot of water it's nowhere near the two million acres that it used to be but it's people returning and the um, the, um, the um, biologist who really led this work a guy named Osvaldo Hinojosa um, who's uh, a bird guy from Mexico um, and I had a chance to have dinner with him last week. He was at this meeting in Salt Lake City, so I had a chance to talk to him. Um, you know, the birds came, and Osvald followed the water down, and the water birds came with the water as it went down the river. The ducks and the coots wow. came down. But the birds of prey as well, right? It's a whole living system. The hawks followed down because they're trying to eat the coots, right? They're trying to eat the ducks the whole ecosystem, it was like, and birds are the most mobile part of our ecosystem, right? The whole ecosystem moved down this channel with the moving of the water coming down. Wow. And it was a, just a beautiful thing. Wow. Yeah, I could, I could see that. You're like good at telling the story and all that. Like it's the water, it's, it's like life kind of thing. It's yeah. breathing life back into Yeah, it. yeah, and it was just yeah. amazing. You know, and, and later we went down farther. I went with a group of scientists farther down to see the other habitat restoration sites, see all the work, and they had built places for this water to go and spark, you know, the development of cottonwoods. And, and you know, it's coming back, and they did, um, the, the, the goal is to do these pulse flows periodically. They did an, another one last year, although they didn't release it from the dam because there's a really dry stretch and you lose a lot of water, it just disappears into the sand. So they, they put it farther downstream, moved it through the irrigation system and put it into the channel farther downstream. But they ha again, they just had this, you know, they do it every few years. And, and they're doing this by conserving water in some other place. They're taking water that would have been used on a farmer in a city and putting it in for the environment as, instead. Uh, and it's really inspiring. Yeah, it's, it's really inspiring. Story. It's really inspiring. Yeah. And it's, you know, the people who did this, I am so full of admiration for them. You know, people like Osvell who did this. Like, nobody thought this, nobody thought we could do this. When I first started working on the Colorado River and thinking about the Delta, you know, I met with the sciencey people and they said, well, if we get a little bit of water, we could get a lot of really good environmental benefits, but there's no way to get that water. And they figured out how to get that water. You know, they raised money from the governments and from, you know, philanthropists, rich yeah. environmental activists who contributed money. Um, and they did it. And they, it looks like they've got a permanent system to keep doing it in a small way. And again, it's in a small way. We're only getting back a little bit. Yeah. but. For the people down in Mexico who live along this once dry river channel, mm -hmm. they get a little piece of their river back, and that's just really an important thing. And it's that cultural piece, that celebration that just really changed my life, watching that and thinking, we can do hard things. If we put our mind to it, we can do hard things. I really, really like his answer. It's just so inspiring. I hope we hear more positive stories as everyone is doing what they can to sustain water. I thought about this podcast for a while and figured someone listening might want to know what they can do. So this became my last question. I asked everyone what advice they might have for people who do want to help out. Brennan answers, then Mary, Becky, Molly, and Wes. I would say the biggest thing 
would be to educate yourself um, in whatever ways that you can. Uh, reading books is a great way to go for that. There's a lot of really excellent literature locally about the water situation here. Um, that's first and foremost. Um, I would say the second thing would be to, to be vocal about this um, and try to educate the people around you, um, your friends, your family, stuff like that. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things about water that people don't know um, because it's just not a part of our daily lives. Um, and you can inject small pieces of information into people's paradigm day by day and suddenly they're like, oh my gosh, like this is a huge issue and we need to actually like take action. Um, and the third thing would be to take action. Literally okay. just call your legislators, email your legislators, uh, attend city council meetings, do all of like the really, really boring stuff that nobody yeah. wants to do. Yeah. Um, Go on boats. Right, yeah. because ultimately like that stuff does matter. I'd say uh, a starting place for somebody who's new to the system or new to the river is, is spending time near it. One of the things that Albuquerque provides both near the river and other areas is protected designated open space. And that's really something very special about the city of Albuquerque that there are these open areas and many of them follow the river, but there are also in other parts of the city. And so to, to take time to have immersive experiences and develop a personal connection through observation and spending time in those places um, is a great way to start. And then there are resources throughout the city through various museums and other programs um, and to start attending those and to kind of follow curiosity. I would, I would add that also in addition to spending time out in the Bosque and in the river to also volunteer. I mean, we're always looking for people to help us with field work and um, help with public outreach. And there are lots and lots of groups around the city and the state that are always looking for people to volunteer. It's not going to pay you any money, but it may be an interesting foot in the door and you definitely would learn something about what people are doing. Um, that also gives you a really interesting opportunity to ask questions. Oh gosh, I mean there are so many things. Uh, you can zeroscape your yard. Uh, what is zeroscaping by the way? Oh, zeroscaping, it's like, you know, you see all the, the houses and stuff around Albuquerque that uh -huh. have just rocks oh, in the front oh. yard and they have drought tolerant plants. So uh -huh. na generally native plants, oh, okay. things like that. Kind of like a deserty look to the, oh okay. Exactly. Instead That's of cool. having grass. Grass, yeah. <laughs> Or, um, or uh, some species of trees and stuff require a ton of water. Oh, true. Yeah. And then you have other species of trees that are drought tolerant, things like that. Um, they can use the specialty low flow toilets. And, I mean, just get this installed. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, all in all, participate in in at least knowing what your water. Um, consumption yeah what's your water consumption is don't take six yeah. hour long showers as much as i feel like i did say that open space doesn't utilize the community um they do have like the open space alliance mm -hmm. but i feel like just volunteering and getting out there researching what uh nonprofits are in your backyard mm -hmm. um and it, i mean even just walking out and experiencing the open space and yeah 
um, I feel like that kind of builds that sense of community. So. All right. There were a lot of great answers to some difficult questions. So let's go over some of the points made during this episode. Even though the problems water people are facing is tough, they seem to be making a good amount of progress with water sustainability by recording data, collaborating with different groups, and knowing where more efforts should be focused. We heard an inspiring story about the San Luis Rio Colorado River. We also were given some ideas on how to help if we wanted to. I think this was a fun little journey. I had a great time interviewing everybody and finding out more about the world of water sustainability. I hope you had as much fun as I did. Now for the thank yous. First of all, I want to say I am very grateful for being granted the Grand Challenge Sustainable Water Resources Undergraduate Research Communication Scholarship. I would not have experienced and learned what I did without this opportunity. Second, I want to thank Becky Bixby, Mary Harner, John Fleck, Molly Hentula, Wes Noe, and Brennan Davis for allowing me to interview them. It really was a pleasure. I also want to thank Mary Harner for letting me use her recordings of nature. Third, I want to thank Centennial Library for letting me borrow the microphones to record these interviews. Lastly, I want to thank everybody listening for taking the time to hear us out. That's all there is. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Goodbye.